save big money on plant protection supplies. Now at Menards. Defend your garden with Triazicide Insect Killer. Its fast-acting formula protects lawns, vegetables, and many other plants. It kills more than 260 insects by contact, above and below ground. Choose from ready-to-spray, concentrate, or granular. Save big money on Triazicide Insect Killer at Menards. And check out our weekly flyer on Menards.com for all the great deals happening now. Save big money at Menards. Happy birthday to me. He's often called John or Paddy Dowling. Even sometimes John Paddy Dowling. To me and my family, He's just our Uncle Jack. I've always been curious about Jack. A gentle giant of a man with an enormous capacity to forgive. His is a story of a stolen childhood and emigration and of an opportunity lost for Ireland to have added the name of another great athlete to the history books. Okay, so Jack, we're here in Tremor Beach, where it all started for you. Yes. 86 years ago today you were born here. I was born here, yeah, just up the hill there, yeah, up near the church. My earliest memories of this place, almost on the spot where we are. My dad was a very good model maker, and he had a model ship, model man of war, the sailing ship there is. And I managed, as a three-year-old, to get it out of the house and bring it all the way down here and launch it. And it was well on the way out, and I couldn't get it... It was too little to get it back. And there was a couple of fellows with a boat, and they went out and got it for me. And then they stole it off me, they took it away. And that's my earliest memories of this little Mm. bit of beach. Madge O'Callaghan. I grew up the youngest girl in a large family from Cabra West in Dublin. And like so many Irish families, we had and still have people belonging to us who moved to England. We had to leave because of lack of employment. And there was a big campaign in the local papers. I saw an advert, an advert in the Munster Express for miners who were going to get really well paid, make a fortune in no time. But the reality was quite different. I went to... I was caught hook, line and sinker by the adverts, and I went across to the coal mines in Sheffield. Made my home in Sheffield, and I've lived there for more than 70 years now. I love the city, but originally it was dark, place with those satanic mills that they used to call them and flames melting up to the sky. The first sight I saw I thought I'd arrived in hell but I grew to love the city over the years. Not as much as I love home. Still call coming to Samoa coming home. I was always fascinated with them because my mother died when I was so young and he was the connection to my mother. He was the only one that I knew of who knew her very well. 
my mother was the eldest in, in the family and uh, Jack was the youngest. And when Jack's mother and May's mother died, Jack would have been about five years old and May was probably about 15 or 16 years old. And Jack was taken to the orphanage by his father. Well, I went there when I was... Uh, I would have been about five, I think, because they considered my dad wasn't fit to look after us. I think the fact that he was an ex-service man might have influenced him a bit, because he'd served in the army and he'd, uh, he was injured. But he was quite capable of looking after us. And uh, they took three of us away from him. I was sent for the first few years to Capo Quinn. And the nuns there, they were very good to me and to all the children. They, uh, they showed a lot of love and kindness to us. And they brought me out. Uh, I could sing, a, still can sing at the top of a hat because of the nuns, mm. because of their trees, this. And I used to play a star role in little plays that they used to have. The first time I ever sang on stage was on my first communion day. As to how we'd light the company One evening at a ball And when writing out he was careful to suggest to them If they found a hat of his convenient to the door The more they put in whenever he requested them the better would the music be for battering the floor. Floor is a waterford word for floor. Well, yeah. So you stayed in Capoquin until... Uh, until I was... Uh, coming off for ten. Okay. And then I went from Capoquin to Greenmount. Greenmount Industrial School in Cork City was one of many institutions set up in Ireland to look after children in the care of the state. And uh, if you asked a question of the nuns in Capoquin, they'd give you a civilised answer. But the first thing that happened to me when I got to Greenmount, uh, there were some brothers there. They were presentation brothers. And the first thing I did, I asked one of them a question and he gave me a belt round the ear hole. And he said, shut up, speak when you're spoken to. And that was my introduction to Greenmount. And it continued in that vein for the next six years or so. Some of the brothers were sadists. They were vicious sadists. That's putting it mildly. And one in particular, who I'm not supposed to mention because of the redress board, he was a very vicious man. And he thrashed me on a number of times which I've documented, in case I've forgotten. I know it's, it'll be hard to forget things like that. But on one occasion, he even threatened to kill me if he ever got me. There used to be a storeroom and he used to dish the punishment down. Very confined room. It, it uh, held books and cleaning materials. But there were shelves and shelves of books. And it was ironic that that would be a punishment room because I loved books. Mm -hmm. And I still do. And he belted me. He gave me such a belting. I thought he, thought he was going to kill me. And uh, it went like that for the next six years. There was a, a bond between us, but a bond of hatred. Mm -hmm. I hated him and he hated me. 
I suppose he's gone now. Hmm. Uh, the Lord will see to him. My Uncle Jack's time in Greenmount had a lasting and traumatic effect on him. I marvel that he's capable of loving and I'm surprised at the strength of his faith considering all he's been through. Ironically, his experiences in Greenmount and in Capoquin led to him discovering two of his great passions in life, music and long-distance walking. first walk was I ran away from Greenmount and I ended up in Kinsale with the guards and they were really really nice to me, the guards in Kinsale, compared to the treatment that I had in Greenmount. First thing I thought, I thought they'd beat me up when they got me in the station, but they gave me a slap up dinner and they notified Greenmount that I was there and they took me back in a big Studebaker sedan. And I'm riding up the drive to Greenman and all that. I say, oh, look at him. Potting it out in the back of a, a posh car. It was a different story when the, as reception, they knocked the stuffings out of me. Ah, it was powerful, of course, in those days. The cruelty was rife. So you went from there then. Yeah. Um, you were 16 and you, you left Cork at that stage, didn't yeah, you? Yeah, I went home. I went home to Samoa. Okay. But I got a job on a dairy farm and we used to I used to take the milk to Tramor every morning the pony and trap and the same pony I used to ride riding up rounding up the cattle mm-hmm. from the surrounding lands you know they were quite some of the land was quite wild moorland and we used to round up the cattle and I used to pretend I was Roy Rogers you know, singing in the saddle I was uh, still only a kid. I, I walked from nearly all the way from Tamor to Kilkenny first to try and join the Irish Army. And then uh, another time I walked to Dublin to McKee Barracks to try and uh, join the Irish Army. But I, I was rejected each time. And then I thought I'd try the, the RAF, Royal Air Force. So I made my way to Belfast. There was very little traffic about in those days, and I walked most of the way on each occasion. Like so many young Irish men and women, Jack left the land he loved. I can't imagine what it must have been like for him, a young teenager travelling on his own to another country to go working down the mines. It was like a hellhole when I got there. It had been blitzed by the Germans. The city hadn't recovered. I was working down the mines at that time, second-hand air and going down and that dropping, plummeting down in the cage every day into the blackness. And then you had the stuffiness. It was second-hand air. And I'd come from a lovely little seaside place, Tramore, fresh air, green fields. It nearly destroyed me. And uh, when I left... The mines, I couldn't stand them. I got called up to the Air Force. It was conscription at that time in England, but I asked to join the Air Force. I had wanted to go when I was a, a youngster, reading stories about Rockford Rogan in the comics of the RAF. And there was a great uh, athlete, Wilson of the Wizard. I wanted to emulate them. 
and had a, a very successful career in athletics and in the Royal Air Force. And I, which caused me to join the Hallamshire Harriers, which was a top cross-country club. There's a big field for the 10 miles road walking championship. And with the weather just what we've come to expect lately, the sooner they get cracking, the better for everybody. It was the early 1950s and Jack left the RAF an accomplished runner and possibly a potential Irish Olympian. I had a job as an insurance agent and one of, the one of my clients, customers, he said to me one day, he said, I saw you running last week in a sports meeting, Paddy. He said, you'd make a good race walker. I said, what's that? He says, well, you walk at speed, you know, rather than run. Some walkers say that you win your race at the start. And I said, what's the point in walking if you can run? I said, I want to become an international runner. Anyway, he said, have a go at it. Come to the club and do a bit of training and see what you feel like. So I went to the club, which was Sheffield United Harriers. Sheffield United keep the team title. Yorkshire are the new inter-counties champions. I reached a, reached a much higher standard as a walker, race walker, than I would have done as a runner, I'd ever have done as a runner. I've often wondered why we didn't hear more about Jack's achievements. He set a lot of records in race walking. And as I've learned more about Jack's life, I'm interested in knowing more about the sport, its history, and the kind of characters who get involved in it. Okay. Um, but yeah, he's he's um, he has quite a few world records. Yeah, I've come well, to meet Ian O'Reardon, sports journalist from the Irish Times. If you go back to the history of Irish athletics, race walking was always prominent amongst the the, the, the traditional events, whether that was uh, at college level or at in the old club level or whatever it was. And by coincidence, one of the earliest Irish champions that we have on record was a man named Abraham Stoker who went on to, to write Dracula under the name Bram Stoker. But he was a champion race walker around the 1850s, 1860s. He went to Trinity College. He was actually unbeaten. And I suppose like most people of that generation kind of fell into race walking by accident because as a youngster he was actually quite ill, it was a bit feeble and quite weak and he was, he was basically told to do a lot of walking down by Clontarf to sort of to build up his strength. And by the age of 17 or 18 then he built up the sort of natural sort of reservoir of endurance and as I say went on to become a champion race walker. And then even last after that, uh, would spend a lot of his free time walking in the hills around Scotland and, and, and parts of England. And, and it was during that period that he got the inspiration to write Dracula. It was, it was part of the early, earliest Olympics, not the, not the original 1896 Olympics, but by 1906 they bought the, the race walking as a, as a competitive event. So that was really the start of it, I suppose, as a, as a competition. And it varied from distances from 1,500 metres up to eventually the 50-kilometre walk. Um, but quite simply, what, what, what the rules were, uh, based on the tradition of walking, was you, you walked at essentially walking pace, the rules being you're not, not allowed to lift one leg over the other in, in terms of like one leg had to be on the, on the ground at all times. So they're pretty basic rules. Jack met and married Dorothy, an English Methodist who was also profoundly deaf. She was a great support to him. She was an incredibly gifted woman full of fun. For a number of years we didn't see much of Jack as he was busy raising his four children and making a name for himself in the world of international race walking. There's a, a club in England called the Centurion Club and you can only become a Centurion 
if you complete 100 miles in less than 24 hours in a proper organised race. Well, I became a centurion in 1962. I finished second on five successive 100 mile races in Britain. And on the strength of one of them, the Bristol 100, I got selected for uh, a full international in Rouen in France. I competed in that, and on the strength of that, I was invited to compete in the big one, Paris-Strasbourg. La marche est chez l'homme la forme la plus ordinaire de la locomotion. Well, in this Paris-Strasbourg, everybody had big backup teams. I had nobody. They called me Le, le Sol Marcher, or Le Marcher Sol, or something like that, the, the Lone Walker. And I had to try and attempt to do 500 Ks, more or less on my own, with, with one attendant or two attendants, which they allocated to me. I used to tear away at the start, thinking that if I do collapse, well, I've got a long way before I collapse, and invariably I did collapse. And uh, my best position ever was sixth. But I knew I was capable of a lot better than that. If he'd had more support on these races, who knows what more he might have achieved. One solid support Jack always had was from his wife, Dorothy. When I started in the spring, there was no money available. And my poor wife, God bless her, she was always get me a few bob. And when I raced, when I finished a race, Depending on the position you finished in, you got a letter with expenses in. They used to call them brown envelopes in those days. And the higher up you finished, the bigger was the, the contents of the, the brown envelope. So that provided the money for the next races for the rest of the year. And I was quite prolific in my racing. You know, I did six or seven hundred mile races every year. What's also special to me about Jack is the fact that he did so much in athletics with very little recognition. We knew we had this uncle who lived in England and he was a brilliant race walker. But there seemed to be no public recognition of him in Ireland that we knew of. What gave me most pleasure was winning the 1979 24-hours race in Luxembourg. A few years before that, I'd finished second to Josie Simon who was the top man in the world at the time. And uh, he was a Luxembourger. He used to have two squads to back him up. And when I walked, I had nobody with me. And there was an article in the local paper when I finished second to him. They said it was an unfair competition. And by this particular time, I, was, I wasn't the least bit fit. And uh, I decided to go anyway. Once I got in the race, I knew I'd do well. I got, I got there about an hour before the start of the race. There was a strike on. But when I got there, there was a, a church in the middle of the square where the race started. So I went in there and I said, Dear Lord, give me the strength to finish this race. I said, I don't want to disgrace myself. I don't want to let my country down, you know. And I couldn't believe it, I won the race. And I won it by a street. I was an hour in front of the next man and Josie was nearly two hours behind me which gave me great pleasure because, he, like I say, he'd beat me with his team the year before. 
sitting at a kitchen table in Sheffield with Jack's daughter, Pat, my first cousin. She's telling me what it was like to have a father who was an international race walker. I do, uh, I do remember him always coming back laden with loads and loads of prizes and as being very excited for him coming home. Some of the prizes he brought home were absolutely amazing. How the hell he got them from France and wherever else he'd been. He once brought this massive big brown earthenware dinner service in about three big boxes, travelling on his own. How on earth he moved them around, I don't know. And when he got home, a lot of them were broken because some of the porters and um, as Dad had said, I don't! They dropped it and it was too late. Um, I remember every um, every year going to Morecambe on a Sharabang and going and meeting um, all the walkers' families. And it felt that every time we were going out or doing anything as a family, it was around Dad's walking. But it became... The, all, all his walking friends and, and their children, it became like a, an extended family anyway. So you've really happy memories of the walks then. Oh actually, yeah. Like that, yeah. Yeah. And the and the coming home with the prizes and all yeah. that. Yeah. And coming home with his blisters. Yes. Oh, you have never seen blisters like it. How the hell that man walked and he used to come home with blisters two inches long. Really big some of them were just ridiculously enormous. And he just walked through it. Unbelievable. There's no doubt that race walking takes a huge toll on the body. I think the very act of walking through that pain might have helped Jack to deal with the emotional trauma of his early childhood. It was in his early years also that Jack discovered another lifelong passion, music. When I went to Capoquin, we were sent to Capoquin. My brother and sister were sent to industrial schools. I ended up in Capoquin. They gave me my taste for music and my love of Ireland. They instilled a love of Ireland in us. And they taught us the history of Ireland. And they encouraged us to express ourselves in song, dance. I used to do the rinka when I was there. I was able to do a little jig or a reel. But I lost my music. I uh, applied to join Green Mountain Industrial School Band. It only lasted a week. But it, it broke my heart, you know. Mm. And uh, I had no music then for years. I was a good singer. I was never allowed in the choir. I never got to sing, only at Mass. I used to sing at the top of my voice at Mass. Jack managed to keep the music close to him over the years, in spite of his experiences. Irish music continues to play a big part in his life, in the Irish community in Sheffield. It's Monday night at the Dog and Partridge. I'm at Jack's regular weekly session, where all musicians and singers are welcome in Cork Woman Anne Flynn's bar. So we had our own Irish club, opened in 1978. And I got involved straight away. We formed a branch of Coltus. And uh, it was going strong. We had 100 members, upwards of 100 members for a while. We had a large number of young musicians, tutors. We had half a dozen tutors, including myself. 
the Coltis group, it matured and we became, we became a very good Cayley band. We used to play all over the place, weddings, Cayleys. In 1988, we organised our first Irish festival, which was a huge success. And we did next following 12 years. I think Ronnie Drew did his first solo concert at one of our St. Patrick's Festival concerts. Jack's love of Ireland, the country that treated him so badly as a child, was reinforced through his race walking. One record he's very proud of is the one he set in 1982. A person in, in Sheffield he asked me to do a charity walk, and I'd always wanted to do from Mellonhead to Mizzenhead. I landed in Mellon on St. Patrick's Day, 1982, the first time I'd been home for many, many years. And we had a, a, a fellow who was with me, a lad called Tommy McGovern from, uh, from Sligo. He didn't know me, but he was a centurion. The following morning, I knelt down in Melonhead and asked my God to give me the strength to get to the other end of Ireland. Some of the last snows of winter were still underground. It was freezing and it rained most of the time. But a spectacular scenery. But uh, Tommy was great until we got to, to Sligo. And then my dear nephew, Sean, Sean O'Callaghan, he volunteered to take me the rest of the way. There were no motorways back then. We come down the old Sligo Tennis Road and through all the little towns and villages all the way. That's my brother Sean, Jack's one-man support team on the record attempt. Got a lot of curious looks, I'd say, from people because they wouldn't have been used to seeing somebody doing sort of race walking at the pace Jack was going at at the time. And remember, Sean never had any experience of walking. He, he didn't know what the hell it was all about. Soda water was one of his big things that he'd drink on the way down. For whatever reason, I think it just kept him hydrated. And he was a great man for glucose. He had glucose uh, drops that he was taking all the way down on the trip. You know. So we were averaging about between 60 and 70 miles a day, I'd say. You know. I loved every minute of it, minute of it in spite of the suffering. We came down into a village called Duras, not too far from Mizzenhead. It was coming on duskish in the evening and there was a family out in their garden and we stopped there to get them to validate the fact that he was passing. So we called into a pub in Duras. And I had the most beautiful beef burger. Well, he said it was the nicest burger he'd tasted in a long time. It was the only solid food I remember him actually eating during the course of that trip. Uh, I asked Sean if it go through the night. I had to go through the night to break the record that I'd set myself, which was less than six days. And it was one of those beautiful Irish nights where they're absolutely pitch black. And I had the window the, the car open and he was walking side by side with me and we were singing the wild colonial boy going down like the road. You know? The wild colonial boy Jack Duggan was his name he was born and reared in Ireland in a place called Castlemaine. 
And Sean was going along behind me, first at five mile an hour, and then I was going slower, and the car was going slower, and I was falling asleep. But I was never nearer to God than I was then. The pitch blackness, you know, everything was so, so beautiful. And we finished half four in the morning, and uh, mizzen head, absolutely pitch black. And it was just, it was just one of those things. It was a really, really special moment, I think, for him and for me. Achieving what he did achieve in terms of setting the, the record and having it published in the Guinness Book of Records um, was probably one of the highlights of his walking career. You know, he'd done lots of walks over his lifetime, Paris to Roubaix, John O'Groats to Land's End. But I think this one on his home soil was probably the one that gave him the greatest pleasure. Records don't, they never have worried me. Mm. I, I wanted to beat the record, but once you've beaten a record, you've beaten a record. Okay. When I talk to my Uncle Jack, the subject of his time in the industrial school often comes up. It took over 60 years for the Irish state to recognise and compensate people like Jack. He's one of about 17,000 men and women who went before the Residential Institution's Redress Board. How was that for you, Jack? They were very good. Yeah. And uh, I got to see a psychiatrist in Sheffield. And me being a Catholic, I was worried. I didn't want to say anything bad about the Catholic Church in front of an English Protestant. Mm. But as it happened, he says, uh, psychiatrist says, tell me a bit, a bit about yourself, John. I says, well, I, I was born in a little town in County Waterford, somewhere. Oh, he says, I know it well. I'm a Dungarvan man myself. So I cleared the air. <laughs> I was able to express myself. And he uh, gave his opinion to the redress board, you know, of how Greenmount had affected me. Because in the course of my talks with him, I broke down a few times, mm. as I'm about to do now. That's OK. Ah, oh, dear. It's set me very emotional, even to this day. But he was a, he was a decent man, and he gave a good a, account to me. So I got my redress... I'm not allowed to divulge how much. Uh, I'm not allowed to divulge the name of the swine who was to beat me up. But, Shinsuke Lella. Uh. He has no sense of bitterness whatsoever. He doesn't condone what was done to him in the industrial schools. But he's able to let go of it. He says, you know, if I don't forgive these people, they still have some sort of hold over me. When the, the redress board came up with a substantial sum, I was able for the first time to give my children a substantial sum each, which I did. I bought myself uh, a melodion with my money. In Jack's case, he's in no doubt about the name of his abuser, but a condition of the redress is non-disclosure. While Jack has had some acknowledgement from the Irish state for what he suffered and lost as a child, it seems his achievements as an international racewalker 
have never been given the credit they deserve in his own country. He's, he's only ever got mentioned for one or two of his records, and at one one point, he did have about thirty world records oh for distance walking and endurance walking. That's Jack's daughter, my cousin Pat. My dad did, and I think still does, hold the records for both John O'Groats to Land's End and also the Malinhead to Mizzenhead and the Mizzenhead to Malinhead. I think he holds the records for them all. I walked in France, Luxembourg, Switzerland... Uh, Belgium, Holland. I loved it. And uh, they respected me in France. I became very well known as a long-distance walker. There's a race called the 28-hour Marche de la Roubaix, 28-hour race in Roubaix. I competed in that 21 times. I finished it 20 times, and they gave me a special award I was the first man to do it uh, 10 times. I was the first man to do it 15 times. And I was the first man to do it 20 times. While he might be well remembered on the continent and in the Guinness Book of Records, there's very little recognition of Jack's achievements in Ireland that I can find. Ah, Malintimism head record. There's one letter to a newspaper that I'm showing to my cousin Pat. Praiseworthy as the effort was in completing the Malinhead to Mizzenhead run in seven days, nine hours, four minutes and 36 seconds. It is far from being a record. I am open to correction, but I believe the Irish end-to-end record still stands to my Irish international racewalking colleague, John Dowling, born 1929, who racewalked under supervision that 644 kilometres, 400.2 miles, in five days, 22 hours and 30 minutes, between the 18th and 24th of March, 1982. It is noteworthy that Dowling, one of the finest endurance athletes Ireland ever produced, was 53 when he achieved the record. It was recognised as such by the Guinness Book of Records, which in most cases seek written corroboration in the form of press coverage and signed authentication by independent adult witnesses of standing in the community. That letter and the 1983 entry in the Guinness Book of Records is the only evidence I can find of this extraordinary career. Ian O'Reardon from the Irish Times believes that the politics of athletics and the reality of emigration might have been why Jack never became an Irish Olympian. Irish athletics was going through a quite a turbulent sense in terms of its political history. There was still a bit of debate about the 26 county versus the 32 county. And, and, and the politics of Irish athletics very often got in the way of athletes who maybe hadn't, hadn't moved away, hadn't, hadn't, hadn't uh, represented the country at home. And it's quite possible that Jack perhaps was one of those athletes who for whatever reason wasn't recognised because he wasn't living in Ireland or wasn't competing in Ireland or wasn't creating some, some sort of headlines to, to, to be recognised. It's happened before. There's, there's a great story about Ronnie 
Delaney, who went on to win the Olympic gold medal in the 1956 Olympics, that he was only selected on the casting vote to be sent because he was living in America at the time. And they were figured at the time, well, if you weren't living in Ireland, then you, you, weren't, you weren't sort of uh, uh, totally focused on that. So, unfortunately, there is a record there where athletes were very often overlooked because they weren't living in Ireland and they weren't sort of visible competing in Ireland. And perhaps if, if, if Jack had been part of that sort of closer to home uh, uh, situation, then, then perhaps he could have competed during the Olympics. And there's no doubt that with, with the credibility that he has as a walker, then, then he might well have made that, that medal podium. Jack never made the Olympics, but he did represent Ireland once. It wasn't a championship event, but it had a huge personal significance for him, to the memory of Jack's father and my grandfather, John Dowling. Well, there was a, there was a race to celebrate the 60th anniversary of the signing of the Armistice, and it was from Compiègne, where the uh, Germans had surrendered to Paris and starting that race with the Irish team mm. and we were flanked by outriders, gendarmes, spotless uniforms, mm. blank coat belts and there were horns blazing. Oh, it was great, representing Ireland for that because my dad had served in the war. My dad and three of his brothers served in the war. And I thought, that's a tribute to my dad, no. Mm -hmm. But it was a wonderful experience. We didn't finish far up in the race because we were very weak. We were a very weak uh, race-walking nation. Not like now, where in recent years, we've even, one of our lads has even won the world title. Mm -hmm. Don't you want me to chop that tree out? And no, let no, no. Let no. his spirit come up. A little, a little his spirit is here, alive and well. Thanks, I'll give that to I'm not going to dig the shamrock up. There's a wee bit of shamrock there. I'm not digging that up. I'll come over here. It's a beautiful autumn day in 2015. Five generations of the O'Callaghan and Dowling families have gathered at the British Military Cemetery in Dublin. We're placing a headstone on the grave of our grandfather, John Dowling, the man who had the heartbreak of taking his son Jack to the orphanage in Capaquin all those years ago. The cemetery is just beside McKee Barracks, the same place Jack suffered rejection as a young man, having walked almost 100 miles to enlist in the Irish Army. He wasn't to know that his father lay in an unmarked grave close by. Remembering John Dowling, son, friend, soldier, husband... Jack is reading the inscription on my granddad's headstone for the first time. Born in County Kilkenny, 1883... Lived in Tramore, died at British Military Hospital, Leperstown, County Dublin, February the 6th, 1939. Rest in peace. And the thing was, I was in an industrial school at the time, and they wouldn't let me come to his funeral. I had had a real belting from one of the brothers, and I had lacerations all over my body, and they wouldn't let my family see him. It's a long time ago. A long, long time ago. I've learned a lot about love and forgiveness from Uncle Jack. His tolerance, endurance and capacity to love are what attracted me to find out more about him in the first place. In spite of not getting recognition for his race-walking achievements, 
his strength of character, his warmth and his faith in humanity outshine any Olympic medals. So many people like Jack, who were so badly treated in residential institutions, have never managed to recover. Look at his head back there. Come on, lads. Let's sing this one again without the furry thing in us. I think my mother, Jack's sister May, would have been proud. This year, we've marked my grandfather's grave. And we've also marked the record and achievements of a proud Irishman, my Uncle Jack, the would-be Olympian. Oh, that's a good one.